So we come to the Pearlfishers, and it was a question really of which, choosing which which production to bring to Seattle. And for me, there was really little debate. There's a production which dated from 2005, I think it was, in San Diego, directed by Andrew Sinclair and designed by Zandra Rhodes. What they have brilliantly done between them is find, for want of a better word, a, a modern take on the exotic impact which this piece would have had on its audiences in, in Paris in 1863. Zandra was a textile designer. What she's done is really translate that not only to wonderful prints on the costumes, which give them life and movement, but also taking the same idea of use of motifs and put that onto the scenery. She's not the person to go to if you want straightforward, realistic scenery. So it's stylized to a certain extent. We're clearly in Salon and we clearly have trees and everything. But by taking a two-dimensional and very colorful approach, she's reflecting the sort of scenery which would have been there on Bizet's stage. Color, I think, is the key to this production. Loosely speaking, it's kind of coded that there's blues and greeny blues for the pearlfish and folk, and the priestesses and priests of Brahma are in uh, reds, oranges, yellows. So, so it's very clear to identify sort of who belongs to what camp. Her vibrant use of color creates a visual impact, which is akin to the element of spectacle which would be a constituent part of this production to Beasley's audience. Zandra Rhodes is a figure absolutely who's been at the centre of fashion in London for as long as I can remember. In fact I'll tell you a little story. Um, I had to do a, a costume element to my university drama degree and I had to I was inept at sewing and and um, uh, failed lamentably to, to create a female costume for a Jacobean tragedy and was moved sideways to a student play called Punk, Would You Let Your Daughter Marry One? And of course, um, Zandra Rhodes was dubbed the Princess of Punk in those um, uh, late 70s, her use of, of safety pins and things. So in making evolving these costumes for the student play, I was, of course, echoing Zandra's work in a, um, in a bizarre kind of way. Operatically, The Magic Flute, uh, which was in San Diego and, of course, has then been seen here, was her first opera. This was her second. She likes an opera with an element of fantasy. She's not going to design a piece set in a slum somewhere. Uh, you know, she, she wants something which is vibrant, and that plays to her, the vibrancy of her designs. Andrew Sinclair and I go back a very long way because my very earliest job was working on the ring cycle at Covent Garden in the beginning of the 80s, and Andrew was one of my colleagues there. And I remember talking with him at great length about Wagner. Um, Andrew is actually Australian, although he's been at the garden for uh, many, 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 many years and lives in London. And, of course, Andrew got to Seattle before I did. He did um, Marriage of Figaro back in 1989, I think it was. Of course, I'm doing the next Figaro in a few months' time, so it's, it's, there's a nice bridge there as well. Dance is obviously a feature of 19th century French opera. It was, it was essentially mandatory to have a, a dance element, certainly at the Paris Opera. And what Andrew 
has done has encouraged dance, maybe more than what we're used to, to suggest the slightly primitive tribal nature of this community. So that, again, it adds an element of excitement, uh, it adds an extra layer to, to some of the scenes, which otherwise might appear somewhat static. So as I say, it was the obvious production for me to want to bring. It's been hugely successful, and I think has, has played 12 times throughout the States since it was it was new. So a couple of houses have done it twice. It's been so popular. Because I think it, it really captures the essence of the piece, it makes it appropriate to us today, but at the same time, it completely respects the uh, the background of the work and indeed plays a slight homage to its genesis uh, in the middle of the French 19th century. Now, our conductor, Emmanuel Joël Ornac, uh, again, I've known a very long time. In fact, I gave him what I believe was his debut outside France when he was young. Uh, we did a production in Opelzaus in Holland of Chabrier's L'Etoile, which is a fantastic piece. It was directed by Christopher Alden, who's coming to do Flying Dutchman for us at the end of the season, and Emmanuel conducted. He's really an expert in the score. He's done it many times, and has an innate understanding of, of French music. Yes, he's French, so you feel that should be the case, but it's not always. But Emmanuel really uh, works beautifully with singers, he works beautifully with the orchestra, and this music is in his blood. And um, I know everyone already in rehearsal has loved working with him. So we've got a very happy team currently putting this show together. This is a quintessentially French opera. There is a... Um, a uh, wonderful saying by uh, Noel Coward about Carmen. He said, the Carmen of Bizet is about as Spanish as the Champs-Élysées. And what he meant by that was that Carmen was essentially a French work, not a Spanish work. And I think the same applies to this, albeit not about Spain. This is not about Salon, or Sri Lanka, as we call it today. The French society in the middle of the 19th century was a quite straight-laced affair. But, of course, we all know... You know, from Traviata, that the men had mistresses on the, side, on the side, courtesans, etc. This duality between the proper married family status and actually the way art expressed the repressed emotions and, and, and desires and longings and, and sensuality. So that the second half of the 19th century there arose a school which we saw in, in art, in music, which we call Orientalism. And that aligned with you know, travelers going to, to the East, especially to, to Asia, to, to, to Japan, to China. It aligned with that discovery, but was also coupled with what I would term a, a patronizing attitude to the East. In other words, it was deemed fascinating to put the East on stage or in art. But there was an underlying assumption that Western culture, Western society was inherently more ordered and more moral. Now, go into the mix of the, the hypocrisy I, I mentioned. To a certain extent, therefore, this school of thought provided license to a very proper society to put sensuality on stage because it wasn't here in Paris. It was somewhere else. And the sensuality inherent in the piece and inherent in the score is given license by its setting. Now, the Pearl Fishers, I don't think, fits into that school of Orientalism. 
Bizet wasn't writing a piece about Salon. He wasn't writing a piece about the conflict between East and West, which you can see in Lakme, for example, where that is in imperial India. Probably the best parallel to today would be the way we put sci-fi on stage or, or, or modern fantasy, to have that sense of something different, something otherworldly. What the production does is, is capture, in a way, that element of a fantastic by not putting realistic scenery or costumes on, on stage and giving them a stylized version. An example of how French it is, for me, is, comes with the hymns to Brahma at the end of uh, Acts 1 and 2, where, in fact, Bizet rehashed music from a Te Deum. <laughs> So this is about as, as Eastern as um, music of, of Notre Dame. And, you know, there's no pretense at making Salonese music in any way, shape or form. This is French music expressing that quintessentially French aspect of fusing religion with desire. She is a chaste priestess being longed after by two men. I don't think we take it seriously. It would be more shocking if we were in if she were a nun in the Catholic Church. Bizet didn't want to go there. That would be dangerous. This way it becomes safer and yet fulfills the same element of a frisson, this little battle between desire and properness and religiousness. So this is an early piece which was actually very successful with its audiences but not with its critics um, and the glorious exception was Berlioz, who saw it, its virtues, especially orchestrally. And Carmen, of course, wasn't a success because it was daring and it was original and he was put in the wrong theatre, and then Bizet died. In a way, he was ahead of his time. For a young man, he writes music of incredible, not only beauty, but fluidity and harmonic daring. When I listen to Pearl Fishers, I, I find little harmonic twists which, which flick me to moments in Carmen. Sometimes... Critics are unforgiving of young people when they write a clearly impressive piece. Bizet was only 24 when he wrote this. He wasn't around long enough to create a, a huge volume of works. His originality, I think, may have held him back. And, of course, he was criticised for being under the influence of Wagner. I think that's unfair. He was slightly misunderstood. And yet he was his own voice and, and uh, obviously one of the great composers of opera, albeit with a a small output. I think his, his early death is a tragedy for the art form, really, because I think he would have gone on to very, very great things. Melody is a really important part of uh, the Pearl Fishers. Beauty is the key word for this score. There's a lyricism, uh, an unending use of melody, which makes the evening just fly past in, in musical terms. You know, the beautiful aria for Nadir, um, Comme autrefois, the beautiful aria for, for Leila, even Azurga's monologue in Act 3 has great tenderness. It puzzles me how the piece got written off as being rather second-rate for many years. Yes, its plot is slightly formulaic, but the characterization, I think, is very interesting. 
it's not a big cast list. Essentially, it's about three people who sustain the entire drama. And yet there is real nuance to the the idea of friendship, the betrayal of friendship, the longing, bordering on obsession for this unattainable vision of beauty, which these two guys have had and have resolved not to compromise. It's actually psychologically a very sophisticated setup. Andrew Sinclair was telling me how in rehearsals he's been really delighted how the singers are bringing nuance and complexity to their characters, because actually if you think think about that core situation it's a bit more than just black and white it exists in a shade of gray i think it's a much more subtle piece than in fact i think it was given credit for and of course we have two casts and he was saying already there are differences between those two casts with the famous duet it's even called the pearlfish's duet You know, we have one of the greatest hit tunes of the entire repertoire. But what interests me about its use in the opera is the melody comes back as what the French call an idée fixe. So when the thought of the friendship or the pact, if you like, emerges, you'll hear it often just in a flute in the orchestra, just, just a small part of it. And again, it's, it's a subtle technique. It's a Wagnerian technique, of course. And that, as I said, that may be... Uh, a source of its criticism. It's a subtle technique which enables us to remember the underlying dramatic idea without having to have the singers sing the melody again, as you might expect it would have been done in lesser Italian hands. Like, here's the big tune, let's milk it for all it's worth. It's a much more delicate approach. I'm sure Beezer's audiences went wild when they heard it, and then the little hint as it comes on orchestrally throughout the course of the drama serves to remind you, the audience of the theme without having to have the, the duet sung again. The opera itself hinges on this male friendship rather than hinging on the relationship between a man and a woman, normally the tenor and the soprano. Of course, the soprano's in the mix there, but it's an interesting realignment that somehow male friendship is considered at least as highly, if not at a more elevated status, than the conventional male-female love relationship. Now, it's not certainly the, the model of standard Italian opera, and I think it gives this opera a particular tone. Pearl fishing is actually a very dangerous act, and people die, which is why they need continual votive prayers going on for the safety. So underpinning this piece, which is very delicate, as I said, there is a kind of macho element. The men are out there getting the pearls, doing their job to provide for their community. You can't imagine Italian operas being built on this male bonding so strongly as being built on a heterosexual relationship. Again, maybe this is why it lost popularity for a while, because it, it is unconventional in that, in that respect. We have a number of debutants, actually, in, the, in this production. Uh, Maureen McKay, who's singing Leila, and Elizabeth Sharnoff, who's our alternate cast Leila, are both making... Seattle Opera debuts, although both have connections. Maureen was a young artist here in uh, 
I think in 2005, and Elizabeth was born in Wenatchee. There are two nice sort of homecomings on, on, on that respect in our two layers. John Tessier was um, last with us uh, in, in the Zander Rhodes Magic Flute and in Fidelio. And Anthony Khalil is making his debut as our two Nadirs. Brett Polagato, of course, is no stranger to our stage. And Keith Fares was in Bohem. He did one some of the Marcellos in Bohem um, a few years ago. And our two Nurabads, Jonathan Lamalu and Junwon Kang, are both making debuts. Jonathan, of course, I know not only from New Zealand, but actually I've known him for many years uh, indeed when he was just starting out. And um, he did a wonderful recital for me when I ran the Buxton Festival in 2000 and uh, is an artist who I've really enjoyed seeing develop over the years. So it's, it's very nice to feature him in this production. So it's a small cast, but of a re- we've got two... Supercasts uh, lined up for you, regardless of which night you choose to attend.